Hey everybody, and welcome to Swords and Satire. This week we have another mini episode for you. It's going to be a can you roleplay it? And we'll be talking about how you can incorporate elements of Princess Mononoke into your roleplaying games. As or always, stories. Or, or stories, or, or fiction writing. Slash fic. If you can work it into your slash fic, even better. We record these episodes uh, talking about role-playing game elements, but yeah, we really want them to be useful to anybody who's interested in writing fiction or just in storytelling or or just the movies that we talk about in general. And in case you didn't already know, I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel. It's me, Jack Olander. I'm here. And it's me, Chelsea Hollowell. Also here. Yes, present. Hypothetically. Mm-hmm. My body's here. I- I'm mostly here mentally, too. Oh, that's, that's something. All right, guys. Well, uh, we had another perfectly rated movie last week. A 30-sword classic in yeah. Princess Mononoke. Uh, all of us, I think, have basically said that it's one of our favorite movies. It's a masterpiece. It deserves nothing less. True. And we had a lot to say talking about the movie, so I hope we have a lot to say about how we can turn this into some cool role-playing content. Well, I want to start off, I got an idea right off the bat. Boom. Ready to go. (laughs) Locked and loaded in the chamber. I think that we mentioned, I think Jack already mentioned, like, this storyline would make a really neat skeleton for a campaign story. Did you say skeleton? (laughs) Well... And I I completely agree. I think that it's a novel way to start off a campaign by having the main characters become cursed and then having to go on a quest to lift that curse. I think that's really cool. It really changes it up from the typical you meet in a tavern and you start a party together. Yeah, I like the idea. I mean, I think having characters start as... I mean, there's a lot of ways to start a campaign, of course, but having characters start as members of a village can work pretty well. You can incorporate some really good backstory unity to the whole adventuring party. We, the three of us, have been in a, or Chelsea DM'd a campaign where Jack and I, amongst some other siblings and significant others in our family unit, played uh, members of a village. And, like, all of our characters had shared backstories and stuff, and it was really cool. Jack is trying to remember what campaign I'm talking about. It was Pathfinder. No, I remember what it is. Okay. (laughs) It was a Pathfinder campaign, and um, it was a pre-written adventure, but I I put a lot of my own spice on it. It was spicy, all right. (laughs) Tastes like cumin. Um, and so you don't have to have everybody being cursed. Like, it could be more than one person. It could be the whole party to, like, really pull everybody in right from the get-go. Hey, or you're you curse could... one person. You might as well curse everyone. <laughs> and you could have some people being, like, friends or family members who are dedicated to helping their loved one lift the curse and they're willing to go on this journey and basically self-exile 
to help their loved one lift the curse. So you could have a mixture or you could work it out with your part, your um, players and just see and just see where everybody's interest lies, you know? Yeah. There's also some room for infecting more than just the party members. If all the party members came from the same village, for example, you could infect a handful of villagers with the same curse Yep. that the party has to kind of take care of because they're less capable. And maybe it would give them motivation to kind of fix the curse for more altruistic characters who are trying to help other people instead of themselves. Yeah. And it might also add to the narrative of the story if you tragically lose a villager oh boy. or two. Yeah, like in the initial attack that or whatever caused the curse, like the initial incident. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, early on, Prince Ashitaka, yeah, when he's fighting the demon, it stretches out and infects only him. But, like, the thing is made out of demon worms. So if the party is fighting it at low levels, it's pretty safe to assume anyone who's attacking the thing in close range or relatively close at all is just going to get worm goo on them. You or could... I believe, as you called it, tainted semen. Uh, yes. No, I, I just called it regular semen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, actually, that's a really cool way to start a campaign out, too, is having the players fight what seems to be a threat well above their challenge rating. Right. Having it be, like, something like in the movie... A, a demon monster, god. A demon god, yeah. No, having the party fight some kind of monster that is kind of degradating so that it's... A, like a, Say, like, it could be a... I, mean, I don't want to say like a terrorist, but you know, some some large high level threat that the party would identify as something that's going to just destroy them, but it is significantly weakened because of it's in this like rotting, infected state and it's not taking the parasite well. Right. So they're able to fell this monster, but then the consequences of it are is that some or many of them get cursed by the creature. Yeah, it did seem like it was on the outs. It was almost dead. But um, one thing you could do is, like, it would be a really high DC, but you could have a DC in place for them to, like, avoid the attacks of the worms. So if there are some dexterous... Some say or some, uh, some saving throws would be good. Yeah. Um, charisma checks. Yeah, intelligence, <laughs> charisma. Those common ones. Yeah. And there are, like, farmers or other villagers trying to get away and they get attacked by the worms and, you know, they they don't have the same skill set, so most of them that get hit are probably going to contract the curse. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yum. Goo curse. You know, I think there is actually a good argument for making it a charisma saving throw. <laughs> oh yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Well, in 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of, like, possession checks are charisma based. And mental domination and charms are all charisma saves, right? Yeah, often. Well, well some of them are wisdom. But 
When it comes to extra planar beings, demons specifically, you do use charisma with spells like Magic Circle and Dominate Demon, right? Mm-hmm. So, when fighting a curse on a demon, like Princess Mononoke, I could totally see it being a charisma check. Yeah, I'd probably guess like a con or something, constitution saving throw, because it's like getting into the body. But hey, I mean, you can you can play with it. Another reason why it could be a charisma check is because, at least in the Princess Mononoke setting, you become a demon when you feed into your kind of rage and hatred, which are both kind of, I think, I would consider those pretty social ideals. So... Yeah, I can see that. Kind of pitting your beliefs against something else, you know? Trying to kind of impose this hatred upon you yeah you could make it a will save but i could uh you know if someone said it was charisma i'd buy it all right yeah that's fair yeah based on your explanation i was also thinking you know that does seem like it could involve wisdom too so there's a lot of wiggle room here it's true for... because they're wiggling all over the place <laughs> yeah and you know the the villager the, uh it's kind of funny because like whoever gets struck down by this curse like they are dying but they're also getting super powerful at the same time so the other villagers that get hit with this curse are actually getting stronger and they're better better able to defend the village while the heroes are away <laughs> well we don't know i mean so that that this is jumping ahead but that does open up some interesting options for later campaign play where if other people are infected coming back to town what state is it in right has your village been protected or have the demons taken over and slaughtered everyone and then that's a new adventure to go on later like getting revenge against the demons who destroyed your town after you left yeah it's true like that's a good point the villagers that are infected are going to be getting stronger and stronger would the other if they went demonic and had a different agenda than humans you know uh they might slaughter everybody <laughs> yeah i mean the demonic powers do activate when you're acting with the intent to destroy right yeah. seems and like it, it seems like whenever you use that ability it spreads the curse significantly faster Yes, it does. You're right. Whenever Ashitaka uses the powers, it does spread along his arm that much faster. So that's a cool way to give the players some incentive to, you know, give them some abilities tied to the curse. But then every time they use it, they are either risking themselves or forcing the infection to spread farther and giving the game master more and more license to have this curse affect them in unexpected or negative ways. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I would probably come up with that sort of effect as a DM myself, but you don't technically have to. Because on Unearthed Arcana, they just added two new feats for 5th edition that are Fey Touched and Shadow Touched. Oh. And that immediately sounded super flavorful for this specific setting. 
because a lot of the animal gods of the forest seem very fey to me. Yes. And the demons, you know, could easily be Shadowfell sort of creatures. Yes. So those feats are a little strong because they're being playtested right now because they give spells, right? Right. And those could be, you know, flavored as their demonic or fey abilities that they're granted from this curse or whatever. But I like it fits flavorfully so well. Yeah. That delicious demon flavor. Yes. And you know, you can you can errata that by having it come with these penalties for using these abilities. So. Right. Something else that I wanted to say, coming from the movie, turning this into part of your potential uh, RPG campaign, is I really like the concept of the animal gods and like these intelligent animals who can talk and communicate with people. I mean, you might meet like wolf gods, boar gods, like leopard gods and stuff that are these powerful avatars of these wild creatures who can talk to the party who can control other animals like them like that creates a really cool set of ideas for creating the world around the adventure yeah and for setting up opportunities for alliances or rivals right i mean i know for one i would want to definitely try to even though in the movie they were pretty angry i would want to try to make a alliance with the ape people because that's so cool yeah yeah, they uh, didn't get a lot of airtime in the movie, but I, I want to see more about the ape tribe. Yeah. I would love to use the ape tribe as a dungeon master just at night. The party kind of around their campfire, they hear something moving just outside the light of the fire, and so they kind of dim it, and they just see these silhouetted like ape shaped things with the red eyes glowing back at them. Yeah. From just all over the place cuz at night they're just kind of everywhere. Yeah. They are. They cover the ground in the dark and they're out there in the movie on the hillsides trying to replant trees. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And there's that great scene where they're trying to like convince son to give them prince ashitaka so they can eat him and gain his power yes yeah she's not convinced that it would work but we don't know if she was right or not i mean i think she was just saying that she probably really believed that it would work but she had to say that just to like not have it happen because she didn't want ashitaka to be but she, she knows that when you consume somebody's life force you consume their sweet delicious energy and power yes that's just oh, science dude right. that's demon talk if i've ever heard it any ape that eats a human yeah like that's a demon for sure i'm just gonna go out and guess maybe that's like um the demon gods that's like some of the abilities they have and the reason that she told them not to do it was because she thought they might become demons. Oh, yeah. Good call. If they ate the humans. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that would be really cool. Another way to become a demon is by 
through uh eating another sentient race. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, that seems pretty full of hatred and malice and rage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Unless you're just like delightfully like, let's have a little look see, because I'm sure the Wolf Clan has eaten tons of people. And well, yeah, what, that, what, that's just their nature. You know, yeah, they're not doing it out of hatred. Right. So they're not demons. One of them grabs Ashitaka by the head and just starts like ragdolling him. Using him as a chew toy. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. That plays into their nature. Yeah, it happens so fast. It, it's just hilarious. Um, yeah, it is. But yeah, um, the ape tribe could be an ally, um, especially if the party was a composition of individuals that were inclined to work with nature, you know? Definitely. And maybe they would help the ape tribe replant part of the forest yeah you know that's another angle of this would be having like a character or some connections where you are playing a character more like son like you know raised in the wild i mean a completely (laughs) original archetype that's never been done in role-playing games before right yeah (laughs) raised by wolves (laughs) yeah uh... i want to be raised by the uh house cats nice I feel like I already kind of was. I'm lazy and uh, I like to lay around and just kind of do my own thing. I got I got attitude. Yep. So you don't necessarily have to follow the exact same adventure path the movie did. Yes, you do. And yeah, you're right. But consider this, right? There are several city states because this takes place in feudal Japan, right? Yep. We know at least about one lord with a private samurai army yep. that is leading an attack against Irontown. And Irontown is another city-state. Yep. yep. And It was Lord Asano and his troops that were attacking. Yeah, yeah and then Lady Eboshi, yeah. the marvelous Lady Eboshi. <laughs> and there's the emperor. So we've got a three-pronged, you know, or, or three-sided war here at least. Then then the animals, the, the animal kingdom's that wanted all the humans to die. A lot of great backstory and political intrigue to incorporate into any campaign or story that you're working on. Yeah, definitely. But we would be totally down to side probably with Iron Town and also probably with a lot of the forest creatures. Yeah, I I, I kind of agree with the politics of Iron Town to an extent. I mean I, I like that they are an autonomous entity who does not want to be used as pawns or manipulated by groups that have more institutional power than they do their shortcoming is their complete focus on human uh issues and and trials and and travails yeah but i mean Mm -hmm. it, it makes sense because a lot of these people are kind of the disenfranchised, the disaffected. As we mentioned in the main podcast, there's lepers, there's former sex workers. We assume that the other people there have probably equally rough upbringings and backgrounds that led them to this drive to want to be part of a community that is kind of self-made and self-sustaining. 
they're kind of set up on as a frontier town. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So there are plenty of good reasons why someone like a party would want to support something like Iron Town. But another thing to think about is, at least in my experience, and there's kind of the stereotype that role play gamers are quick to violence on anything that looks like a monster. Oh, I've never heard that before. Tell me more. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume the party is going to kill a lot of these animals from the forest. <laughs> and having an alternate adventure path just in case where people just side completely with one of the human city-states or multiple. Yeah. And they... And as a DM or a storyteller, you could give them an out that way by saying like, oh, yeah, the emperor wants the head of the great forest spirit to cleanse, like to give him immortality. Yeah, uh, that'll probably cure your curse. And then as a DM, you can decide whether or not that's true or whether or not they get the emperor, the head of the forest guardian by some uh, profane miracle. Right. Yeah. And then they just die because they did the wrong thing. <laughs> or it could work. Or it could work. Yeah. It's kind of up to you, but it would be interesting to see players pick another path. Well, as we know, yeah. Ashitaka and uh, San were cured of the curse when they returned the four spirits head back to him. And when when they restored balance, they re were rewarded in the movie. So um, if you wanted to cleave closer to the story, you could build in rewards for the players when they act in a way that is kind of that spreads harmony and tries to bring balance in between the human civilization and the nature spirits. But honestly, I think most parties would probably do what jack said it's hard to say uh so yeah you you don't have to completely punish the party i like what jack jack's i like jack's point you don't have to completely punish the party um for choosing another path that's just kind of where their interest lies you know yeah you want them to go the route that the party wants to go i mean that at the end of the day it is your story and their story together. Yeah. Also, Lady Eboshi is such a strong character because she's sort of a villain, but she's also sort of a hero. And I could easily see uh, her being such a compelling, like, NPC yeah. that the party would just be like, oh, we'll follow Lady Eboshi to the ends of the earth. <laughs> yeah. I she... think that Lady Eboshi provides the party with, or, or provides any storyteller with kind of a ready-made persona. Yeah, she is such a compelling figure. She cares deeply about her people, and she's kind of like their mother, in a way. And they're a caretaker, and she gives people a new lease on life that everybody else had given up on. And um, she she's a true humanitarian. So for whatever her faults are, in a different from a different perspective, she could be a hero. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of the 
writing advice that a good antagonist might be right and a great antagonist is right. In a lot of ways, Lady Eboshi is right. She is helping the disenfranchised. She's building opportunities for herself and the people that she cares about. She is a bit morally gray or even amoral with how she figures it's fine to just kill this forest spirit that hasn't done her any harm. But she seems to actually believe that it, you know, maybe not believe, but think, hey, you know, it could end up helping out. It could cure the lepers of their leprosy. Well, she knows it uh, governs life and death and has healing powers. Yeah, so she has reason to believe that the killing of the spirit might be better for people. And at the end of the day, she's more of a Lex Luthor type. Mm-hmm. She just wants what's right for humankind. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I also, you really gotta respect how open she is. She's like, I'm making guns to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> she says it straight up. And her people, she's so good to her own citizens that they support her in that goal. <laughs> yeah, they are very concerned with her and they want her to be safe. Because she is, they want her to take over the world. She's kept them safe, so I mean, they have every reason. Her people have every reason to believe in her, and that's another mark I think of a great villain. I I'm not a big fan of villains with the subordinates that they treat like garbage and like rule them with an iron fist. I find that very. I mean, okay, the more we learn about how like human workplaces and stuff are. Maybe the uh, Iron Fist and terrible work conditions make sense in reality. I find much more compelling Lady Eboshi's means of leading through earning the respect of your people. They respect her because she has done right by them. She provides for them. She's incredibly patient and kind uh, with them. She's even willing to give Ashitaka the benefit of the doubt when he first shows up, even knowing that he has different intentions and that he might try to thwart her. She doesn't want him killed. She says to let him do what he's going to do, even though she knows that he's working towards different ends than she is. She constantly tells her people to let him stay free and follow his own agenda and not to thwart him. Yeah. I mean, she, she believes in this concept of freedom that she has, built Iron Town around. So I respect that about the character. At least she lives up to it. She's not hypocritical about it. Like, wouldn't that be such a cool moment in a campaign? The party has been sneaking around this, like, the lady of the town. (laughs) Yeah. And then they finally, like, have to do something publicly, and she's like, no, let them do it. They've already been doing their thing. It's all right. Let them keep going. And they're just like, oh, you knew about that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Keep doing your thing. That's pr- cool. that's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it's not harming the people of her town. Yeah, exactly. Because well, she, she would stand up for them. She's very matriarchal towards them. Or she Yeah. She's very maternal towards the people of Irontown. And right. I think that that is something if you're going to use a character like this in your story, you want to use that element of her where she is protective of her people. Right. She is not a tyrant to her people. Yeah, she actually gave me big Napoleon Bonaparte vibes. Yeah? Yeah. 
to me, they seemed very similar in just the way they behave. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, not that Napoleon was, like, the savior of, like, lepers and, like, women's rights or anything. But they both were warlords, right? Who kind of were... They're, both of their main philosophies were don't be afraid of things that claim to be bigger than you, right? Yes. Lady Eboshi isn't afraid of the emperor at all. The emperor of Japan. She, she like, kind of plays around with the idea of his irrelevance. Yes. And the only reason that she does this task for um, Jigo, who's working on behalf of the emperor, is not even that she's really bothered by the veiled, thinly veiled threat he makes to her. Uh, it's really that she just wants to be left alone to her own devices, and she figures... If I lead him on this one little expedition, it really won't take that much of my time. I might take out one of my enemies or several of my enemies in the process. So it actually benefits me. And I'll get him off my back and I can go back to doing my own thing. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up Jigo because I think that that's another compelling antagonist in the multifaceted political scheming of the story that I think a storyteller or game master would want to bring into their Princess Mononoke inspired campaign. Having this guy who is kind of the opposite of Lady Eboshi, he is a scoundrel. He is doing something just for glory. He's not the powerful leader. He's an underling, but he is just kind of like doing what he can for himself. And I think that's another type of compelling antagonist that you can introduce. Mm-hmm. I just realized that all that rice he was eating in the beginning of the movie was Prince Ashitaka's rice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he helped him he helped him buy it and then he ate it and he ate most of it. Yeah. But you see, see there's another cool thing though. A antagonist who when you first meet them, you don't realize you're going to be working against them potentially. Right. They're and, friendly at first. And they're actually friendly and like now Jigo is taking advantage. Because he knows that that gold piece is worth a lot more yeah. than he is helping Ashitaka get for it. But he also knows that he can, like, eat for free off of this, basically. Yeah. He also knows that Prince Ashitaka's group of people, like the town, the folk that he comes from, yeah. have been persecuted in the past. And he also mentions, he's like... You know, I only know one group of people who ride those red elk and use bowls like that. But, you know, I didn't see anything. I won't jump to any conclusions or tell anybody, right? Yeah. He's basically playing it cool. So it's kind of like he's doing a solid for the party at first, if you want to make it something like that. Yeah, I think that's a great villain. Somebody who is helpful and even, like, beneficial to the party early on. But then it probably will later on turn out that, well, I mean, that's the great part about an RPG. You introduce all these characters with goals that are at odds with each other, and you give the party the choice of who they're going to help in the end or if they're going to blaze their own trail. The thing is, is that Jigo is a villain. He's not evil. He might be evil, but... Well, he's selfish. He's a dickhead, morally. He's a... <laughs> <laughs> he's chaotic dick. That's, yeah. his, that's his alignment. No, he's lawful selfish. <laughs> 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 
Nice. Yeah, because he's doing things on the Emperor's behalf and following the Emperor's orders. Okay, that's fair, I'll buy it. Yeah, and he's using, like, political intrigue and clout to throw his weight around with Lady Eboshi, so... Yeah, good point. Yeah, I could see a big argument for lawful evil, but friendly. Yeah, yeah. He's a friendly guy, even helpful sometimes, as long as it gets him something, like a... like. 10 bowls of rice for dinner. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. That looked good. That rice looked amazing. It, it did. did. It had little raisins in it or something. It was like porridge. <laughs> Flavor chunks, they call them. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the animal kingdom. Uh, a little bit more, at least. Let's, yeah. let's flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, we talked about the ape tribe a little bit so far. But we haven't talked so much about, like, the way... In the, so in Princess Mononoke, the characters we get the most time with from the animal spirit kingdom are the wolf clan and the boar clan. We get two of the... They're called gods, I guess, for the boar clan. And then Moro... Moro? Uh, Moro, yeah. And Moro from the wolf clan. Moro has raised San as her own wolf cub. Yep. Even though San is a bipedal and hairless uh, wolf. Humanoid looking wolf. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's the titular character, guys. Princess Mononoke, if you didn't know. Yeah. Make sure you've watched the movie. Um, yeah. Because this movie rules. You gotta see it in one, at least once in your life. So Moro's an interesting character because she despises humans, but she is willing to trust Ashitaka because her daughter seems drawn to him. And and later comes to care for him. And um she's constantly threatening to kill him too. I'm getting I, I get big Yondo vibes from Moro. Yeah. Like, you know, he threatens to eat Star Lord every day. <laughs> <laughs> but he never does it. Yeah. Like he, he he felt that, you know, that paternal instinct towards Peter. Yeah. Even though I, I'm not saying it's a great way to be raised under threat of violence, but like there is like a compelling story of commitment between characters there. And Moro and San have a more loving relationship, it seems. Yeah. Oh, they are completely uh, family. They they love each other. M- Moro doesn't consider San a human. She considers her a wolf. And and that's how San thinks of herself too. Shut up! I'm a wolf. <laughs> so if I'm looking at the different factions, right, and this is just kind of spun off of the forest area that you're talking about, right? I was thinking in D and D, if you were gonna put the forest with the gods into it, mm-hmm. owl bear god. Yeah, yeah, you could. That would be so badass. But you could easily make the comparison with the Feywild, like I mentioned earlier. Yes, perfect. And that, I think, is really good because it kind of... The Feywild has a reputation, or the plane itself is aligned with chaotic good. That's kind of the alignment of most things that come from that place. Chaotic neutral to chaotic good, probably. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that would be perfect for 
the forest in this setting, even though it's probably more chaotic neutral. Yeah. Good neutral then, doesn't matter as long as you're chaotic. Exactly. And then when it comes to Iron Town, you could easily make them true neutral because you just could. And then you could have the evil faction, which would probably be the emperor and like siding with Jigo, right? Yeah. Yeah. So depending on the alignment of your party, you could kind of direct them towards one of those three paths if you wanted to simplify it that way. I would probably make a case for the people of Irontown being lawful neutral and the animals being more true neutral, more true to D&D morality. Definitely. Where wild animals tend to be true or are, are true neutral and then even ones with a higher level of intelligence like Moro and Nago and Okoto, the the wolf gods and the boar gods, see themselves as like even more removed than the people of Irontown. The people of Irontown are committed to humanity, but like the wolf tribe and the boar tribe and the ape tribe don't have any loyalty to one another. They see themselves as completely separate entities, often at odds with the other members of the forest, where the people of Irontown are, like, making deals and, like, selling arms outside of their own borders. Oh, yeah, they have a trade network. They regularly leave with iron that they've created on caravans and return with food and other goods they need for their town. They do this at least twice during the movie. But the boar tribe seemed more chaotic to me. They were um prone to fiery passions and were they were um the all the smaller boars were called warriors and um they were kind of warlike. Would you call them boarish? <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, they were less inclined to listen to reason. And so they only came in when it was time to go on the war path against the humans. Um, so you might, in a campaign, you might bring them in when it's time to, like, escalate things. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, depending on what path your party has been following, they might join the boars uh, along with the wolf tribe most D players are probably more boar tribe than anything else in the movie yeah, yeah. yeah or or you might be fighting with iron town against them it's true if i know my, the players that i've had in my D campaigns the second they heard the boar clan shout nago was beautiful Nago was beautiful. They'd just be repeating it constantly throughout the campaign while committing atrocious acts against humanity. Oh my god. Nago was beautiful and you killed him. <laughs> oh man, I think that my most recent D&D party would be full full on Iron Town devotees. Like they would all try to get like Iron Town addresses and like move in and become full-fledged members. Yeah. I could see it. Help Definitely. help around the town, maybe even set up some kind of shop or something. Yeah, like hanging out with former sex workers and lepers and stuff, like that would be totally their, their bag. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think the villain at that point, at least with that specific party you mentioned, would probably be the Lord. Yeah. Lord Okoto. Lord Asano. Lord Asano Okoto is the boar guy. Yeah. yeah. Or even the emperor. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. He's kind of a ever omnipresent but faceless enemy that we yeah. only get to really feel his presence through the representation of Jigo. I mean, like I said in the main episode, he is the true villain of this whole story. Right. Oh, dude, you know how the Emperor is like, it's okay if you look at the Nightwalker, the god of death, and the guardian of the forest, the god of life. I can say it's fine because I'm the Emperor, and I'm sovereign. I have divine right to rule, and so I say it's all good, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be so funny if the, if the Emperor was like, bring me the head of that forest guardian because it's divine and it'll give me immortality. And the party sides with Iron Town, and they make friends with the animal gods, and they're like the emperor is the bad guy, and then they take off the head of the divine emperor and give it to the ape tribe oh to god. give them immortality. Oh my god! Oh my god! Feast, my friends, the apes, for the beautiful Nago. <laughs> But Nago was the boar god, not the ape god. But he was Never beautiful. Never forget. <laughs> he was. Oh, God. Never forget. Never forget poor Nago. Well, I think that with the immortal words, never forget Nago, uh, we're pretty much done here. Thank you, as always, for listening. Make sure to check us out on social media, at Swords and Satire. Join the Swords and Satire Facebook group. Let us know if you run with any of these ideas or if you're going to start building your own uh, playable character, uh, your own player characters out of San, Ashitaka, Lady Aboshi, and Nago. Oh. <laughs> and until next time, keep rolling those dice. Bye! <laughs> Later.